Hi, this is Pastor Ben Fagelin from Bright Church. I'm so glad you're listening to this podcast. I hope this message inspires you, deepens your relationship with God, and that you're encouraged in your faith. We hope to see you soon at Bright. We had a bunch of questions that people have written in about, hey, can we trust in the Word of God? Is it reliable? I mean, uh, what evidence do we have? What if the Bible's wrong? Perhaps it's just a book. And, and this is a super important question because if we are wrong about the Bible, then we just might be wrong about everything else. And if that's true, we could even be wrong about God and and who He is. So this question really matters and it's a really important question. And and for me, I I gotta tell you, like I've wrestled with some of this stuff before. So my background is, is that I grew up as a kid going to church and, you know, I went to Sunday school and we would sing songs about God. And, and, and what did I learn there except that he was, he was big and that he was mighty and that he was good and that he was powerful. And, and, and so we'd sing these songs in Sunday school. And then I had a couple of experiences that didn't quite fit the narrative, right? So, so I, my grandfather, he died when he was 59 years old. And I remember when he died, I had this incredible challenge to my faith because uh, I remember my, my aunt and my uncle and my mom and my dad and my nan, and they were all praying that my grandfather would be healed and that he wouldn't die. And then, of course, inevitably it happened. And, and I guess there was kind of like this disillusion about God and, and who He is. And I guess the question that I had in, in my heart was, come on, I mean, if God was able to do it, like surely He would have. And I, I navigated that experience as difficult as it could be. And then I guess a couple of years later, I actually got this illness when I was a kid. And it affected my central nervous system and meant that I wasn't able to walk. In fact, at the beginning of high school, I had to wear calipers uh, under my pants at school because, you know, I wasn't able to walk properly. And so what happened in life is I started to accumulate these experiences that didn't quite fit everything that I'd previously learned about God. And I mean, all of my learning came straight out of the Bible, right? So, so my thing was I started to have this problem. And my problem is is that my experience no longer matches my belief. And I don't think I'm alone in that. And I, I wanted to tell you that because I wanted you to know that You know, even where I got to today and how I arrived here, I I didn't live in the bubble my whole life. You know, the Christian bubble where I never thought about it or I never asked the question about who God really is. And I mean, I think we probably all had experiences at different points in our lives that has challenged what we really believe to be true about God. I mean, for some people, it's because someone got sick in your family and died. And maybe you prayed about it and you asked God to come and heal them and it didn't happen and it caused you to reconsider what you previously held as truth. Or maybe for you, it was like you, you believed and you went to Sunday school when you were a kid and then, because you, I don't know, maybe you were forced to go and, and you went along and you kind of had these ideas about God, but then you got to high school and it started to get a little bit more intellectual and they said, oh yeah, all that stuff is fairy tales. Let, let, let us teach you all about evolution and biology. And, and that just kind of collided with everything that you previously held as truth. And because of the way it was presented to you, you thought, oh my gosh, this, this must be true. It must be that maybe God isn't real. Or maybe if, if God isn't real, the scriptures can't be right either. Or maybe for some people, they've, they've gone into a church, 
They've had a terrible experience uh, in that church and they made them think, oh, I don't even, I don't know about God anymore. I don't know about church. And my point is really that we've had all of these experiences and we have this problem because it doesn't quite fit the narrative of what maybe we learned as we were young or even what you learned as you were older or what you thought might be true about God. And I thought before I start anywhere, maybe the first thing that we should do is really look at what the Bible really is. Because if you don't know what it is, it's going to make it a little bit hard to understand what it's all about. So, so straight up, the Bible is not a science book. It's not a book of science. It's not intended to be a science book. What the Bible is, is the progressive revelation of God over thousands of years as people have recorded their interactions, their conversations, and, and, and how God revealed Himself to them. And all of those things have been written down at different points. And if we were to look at what those words describe God as or how they communicate who God is, we would probably know that they are meant to say some of the things that we would come to expect. So, so the Scriptures say that God God is sovereign in the sense that He's able to control the entire universe and everything that happens in it. And we would know that the Bible says that God is unchanging, okay? So that's what some of the Scriptures say, that, that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's just the same God. And then we would know that the Scriptures say that God is, is love. And, and when I say love, I don't, I don't mean that like God knows how to love, but the Scriptures would say that He is love. In fact, the only reason we know how to love is because we got that from Him. We didn't invent love and then teach it to God and He learned something new. Wow, how about that? No, 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 no. The Bible says He literally is love. It emanates from His being. And so then, you know, the Scriptures to say a couple of other things. And, you know, they don't necessarily use these words, but they certainly communicate some of these truths. So one of the words that we might use to describe God is that the Bible would uh, picture Him as omnipotent, which means that He's all-powerful. And they would say that He's omniscient, which means that He's all-knowing. He knows everything about everything. He knows the past, the present, and the future. In fact, God sits outside of time and space so He can see all of time, all at the same time. And then it says something really interesting, that God, that He is omnipresent. So that means that God is everywhere all at the same time. And when I say that He's everywhere, like I don't mean that like God is in this, you know, pulpit right here and He's not in this platform right here. That's, that's what we would call pantheism. And He's not in everything, but He is everywhere and all at the same time. His presence is here. In fact, the psalmist writes this in Psalm 139 verse 7. He says, Where shall I go from your spirit? Oh, where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, there you are. And if I make my bed in Sheol, there you are. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. I mean, the Bible says so much about God. And I'm telling you, in this message today, there's no way that I could tell you everything about God. I can't tell you everything, but there would be more things that I think are very important to talk to you about how the Scriptures communicate who God is. One of the things that the Scriptures would say about God is that He is a triune being. So, so as Christian people, 
uh, we are what we call monotheists. So our belief in God is that He is three in one. He is one God in three parts, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's what the Bible says. We call it the Trinity. And I know it's a little bit confusing, but this is how God has sort of disclosed who He is. And it's funny because whenever, if I ask people like, hey, what do you think about the, you know, we call that the Godhead. What do you think about the Trinity? You know, sometimes people use a lot of different phrases and, and, and words. And I say, hey, where did you get all of those words from? They say, oh, well, like it's, doesn't it say that in the Bible? Well, kind of like I, I think that what the scriptures do is they infer a lot of the things that we now hold as truth. They infer those things and maybe not directly and explicitly say it, but they infer it. For example, people would say, oh, the Godhead is that they are all one. And the Godhead is that they are co-equal in glory and they are co-equal in dominion or that maybe that they're co-equal in authority and, and, and majesty and they are all eternal. And, and, and that's a great description of how the Scriptures describe God. But in fact, the Bible doesn't explicitly say that the three of them are all like that. It doesn't explicitly say it in those words. No, when we use those words, we actually get that from the creeds, the Athanasian Creed, in fact. And if you want to know, part six of that creed. And so the early church fathers, they are the ones that formed what we now call doctrine. And doctrine is like the fundamental truths of what we hold to be true about God. It's our fundamental beliefs in who God is. And it was the early church fathers that formed it. And when it comes to the doctrine of, say, God and the Trinity, part of this was formed, not necessarily in what it explicitly says, but when you put all the pieces together and you put all the Scriptures about God together, it forms a direction. And if we look down the direction of what it says, we have enough there to form a really clear picture on what God did and who God is and, and, and really this idea of, of God in three parts. You might not know this, but the early church fathers are very much responsible for a lot of what we read and what we believe today. In fact, they made decisions on what Scripture was. Now, I'm not talking about the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible. That's a totally different thing, even though we include it in our Bible. I'm really just talking about the New Testament, okay? By the way, just for, for the record, in case you're wanting to learn a little bit extra, that word testament means covenant. And that covenant is the agreement that we have with God. So this new agreement that we have with God is the one that we get by grace through faith in Jesus, okay? So, so when it came to the doctrines that we see in the New Testament and the Scriptures, as they pieced them together, there were a couple of things that were really important. And to, and to think that it maybe it was a couple of guys sitting around having a conversation, you don't understand maybe how extreme this was and how serious they were about getting it right. Now, I can't tell you everything about everything, but here's what I will do. I'll give you three things that were really important to them when they were forming what they believed is Scripture. Number one, they understood that it was the human hand that wrote the Scripture, but it was divinely inspired by God. And that's important to know. 
That's because when you read the Scriptures, you'll see that each author has their own style. And so you might see a style of writing, which is sometimes how we recognise the authorship of different books, but it was still completely breathed by the Spirit of God. So number one, they understood that the human hand wrote it, but it was completely divine inspiration. Number two, they needed to, under, they, they needed to either be an apostle to write a scripture, or at least what was written had to be endorsed by an apostle. Maybe the apostle was saying it and somebody else was writing it. One of the people that wrote, in fact, this person wrote the most scripture in terms of volume in the New Testament is a guy called Luke, who was not an apostle, but he served with Paul in, in this mission to get the gospel to the nations. And he wrote the book of Luke, that's why they called it Luke. And he wrote the book of Acts. And if you look at volume of Scripture and put those two books together, here's the weird part. Here is this Gentile who wrote more of this book than any other or more of the New Testament than anyone else. But it was completely endorsed by the apostles and he was there and he saw things and eyewitness accounts. And so they understood that that was divinely inspired too. And number three, it had to be consistent with the rest of Scripture. If there was something and it didn't fit with what everyone else had said, well, they just kind of got rid of it and they said, this is not divinely inspired. And they, there was a lot of other things that they did to make sure that we finally got what we have now. And the Bible in its entirety, including the Old Testament, is 66 books with 35 credited um, authors. So there might be some people in there that have authored something, uh, but we have 35 credited authors that we know about. And so over time and through history, what we see and what we come to learn is about God through this progressive revelation over the generations amongst a whole heap of people, as we've seen Him interact with the nations, right? And it's their collective experiences that all come together to help form a more complete picture of who God is. And one of the things that we see from beginning to end as we read and we understand it, and, and surely one of the biggest takeaways that you would have to come away with after reading the entire Bible is that God is good. Something that Jesus said. He said, only God is good. God is good. And I think that's important to remember. I think that's important to know. I think it's important because what you need to know is that there is a difference between knowing what God reveals and understanding everything God does. I mean, we can know a lot about God. We can know a lot about who He is because He's revealed it to us. But just because we know a lot about Him doesn't necessarily mean that we will understand everything God ever does. Those are separate issues. I mean, some of us are going to have experiences where we're really not quite sure what God was doing in that moment. But we know that He's good. So that kind of teaches us something about the motivation of His heart that brings context to our circumstances. And I think this is incredibly important to know because if you confuse the two, if you confuse what God reveals with understanding everything that He does, then you can lose your faith. And I think that we have so many people that have learned about who God is, but they haven't necessarily understood everything God's done. And because of the gap between the two, or maybe they confused the two, 
they started to lose their faith. Well, let me just be honest with you right now. The truth is, is that some of us are gonna go to the grave, probably all of us, unless Jesus comes back, with unanswered questions in our heart. I'm not gonna know everything about everything. I really am not gonna know why my grandfather died at age 59. I still think it was kind of young, but I know that God is good. We're, we're gonna go to the grave with probably many questions that are unanswered and things that we don't know. Uh, sometimes we say to God, explain it to me. I wanna know, tell me about it so I can understand. Well, just to give you a little bit of context, let's say there's like 9 billion people in the world Research would tell us that on average, the average human makes 35,000 decisions every day. And you want God to explain the complexity of how He blends 35,000 times 9 billion decisions every single day and how He's bringing all of this into some plan that He is going to execute and He's controlling it. The truth is that there are a lot of things that at the end of the day, we're just not going to understand. We're never going to understand it. And I mean, He could explain it to us, but we're still not going to get it. It's probably, to be honest, beyond our comprehension. See, the, the whole point of the Bible is for God to reveal Himself, not explain Himself. And that's a big point. That's an important distinction. The Bible is God revealing Himself. It's not explaining Himself. In fact, if you know the story about how, how Moses went out into the desert and there was a bush that was burning and, and it caught his attention because it wasn't being consumed. Come on, that's, that's impressive, right? So, so you go and check out the bush that's burning but never gets consumed and, and he realizes he's having a conversation with, with God, you know? And, and God introduces himself as I am. What he didn't say was I am omnipotent. I am omnipresent. I am omniscient. By the way, Moses, this might be hard for you to understand, but I am also love. I'm triune being, okay? I'm Father, Son, and Spirit. He, he didn't say any of that stuff. He just said, I am. It was a self-disclosing statement and Moses would come to know so much about God. But did you notice that Moses learned more about God as he took the journey with God? It wasn't all in that moment because God wasn't trying to explain everything about who He is and everything He's ever done in that moment. He just said, I am, and let's take a journey and you're gonna kind of figure it out along the way. You know, it kind of, when we read the Bible, I think one of the best things about having the Bible is it makes it easier for us to kind of see and recognize when something really is God. Because we know who He is and what His character is and we can put our own experiences, maybe some of our thoughts and ideas and we can put them against the Bible and say, that's from God or, you know, I just don't think that God would behave like that. That makes it easier, easier for us to recognize God. Although, although the Apostle Paul, he said, isn't it kind of obvious that God exists? The Apostle Paul says in Romans 1.19, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature have clearly, clearly, been perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they, being people, so people are without excuse. In other words, what Paul is saying is, we should be able to walk outside, see a sunset and realize that God exists. That's, that's what Paul is saying. 
But that's not the world that we live in anymore. I mean, I, I get what Paul was saying and I understand why he wrote that to the, to the Romans and he, he wanted them to understand something. It's like, hey, come on, the, the creation itself should declare that God is, is real and that He exists, but, but that was wrote, written to them and we don't really live in that world now. In fact, the world that we live in is, is infinitely more complicated than the one that Paul wrote to. We, we, we've advanced in, in some ways as a culture, in some ways as a culture, not always, but now it's, it's probably a little bit more confusing. You know, after the Bible was written for much of the, the Middle Ages and all the way through up until the late 17th century, most people just believed that God existed. I mean, they didn't question it. They didn't understand the reality of the world that they lived in. They just said, yeah, they believed that God was real. And boy, I mean, even if you didn't believe that God was real, a lot of people wouldn't even admit to it. Even when people weren't sure about it, they were still afraid of going to hell, you know, so better to believe and, and, and you know, have that one safely tucked away so that, you know, if it's real, you can say, hey, I'm a believer, you know, so, so that's the world that we lived in up until the late 17th century. But there's this period of time in, in, in modern history and this period of time is, is known as the Enlightenment period and it really, it dominated most of the late 17th, 18th and 19th centuries across Europe. And I can't tell you everything about the Enlightenment period, but I can tell you this, that it has influenced the way that a lot of people think today. It has influenced the way that you think today, whether you realize it or not. I can't explain everything about the Enlightenment period, but I'll tell you what it was characterized by. It was characterized by a distrust of authority and that truth would be obtained through reason, observation, and experiment. Well, that is just straight up against Christianity, isn't it? I mean, that is really fundamentally directly opposed to Christianity. I mean, if, if you're going to have a distrust of authority, Authority doesn't come higher than God, right? So if you don't like authority, boy, I can see how already you might not like God because you have a distrust of authority. Gosh, this could have, you know, been written to so many people today because this is how a lot of people think today, especially Australians, you know, they have this distrust of authority. Think about the, the church itself. I mean, that is an institution, right? In some ways, it's actually just you know, Jesus's ecclesia, which is God's people. But come on, like in, in some ways it's, it's, it's organized and, 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 you know, it has to be organized. Gosh, that's how we know what time to show up for church. Trust me, if you think that the, the church is bad when it's organized, you should see it disorganized. It's a mess. It's worse, right? So, so I, like, I like admin. I like a little bit of organization. It's better when we, when we plan this stuff out, all right? So, 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 you know, they would completely distrust the church and one of the things that they wanted to have is, is what? Reason and observation and experiment. But we believe in miracles if you're a Christian. I mean, think about it. We, as Christians, we believe, we have to believe that the Virgin Mary conceived and gave birth to Jesus. And I'm not going to go into all the details today, but I'll tell you this, that if Mary wasn't a virgin when she conceived and had Jesus, then Jesus could not be the sinless person to take away the sins of the world. In other words, our, all of our faith rests on the fact that Mary was a virgin when she conceived Jesus. I mean, if you, if you look at it, right, we believe in the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. In fact, get this, all of Christianity, 
must believe that Jesus was resurrected from the dead. Our hope for the future and our belief system is completely pinned to the idea that Jesus was resurrected from the dead. Because if He's not resurrected from the dead, then basically everything that we believe is rubbish. We, we, we believe in miracles. And this goes against a lot of what this, this enlightenment period had led people to believe. And, and there are some major problems with this and we still see this happening today. One of the major problems is, how do you even test for a miracle? Like what scientific instrument do you have to know that a miracle happened through it? Let, let me give you an example of this. Let's say... You go back in time, Jesus is feeding the 5,000. If you know the story, he gets the fish and the loaves from the boy. They took a kid's lunch anyway. They were going to do something special with it. So they multiply it and he feeds, you know, like 5,000 people. And so, you know, let's say you grabbed one of those fish. What instrument do you use to test that a miracle was done through it? Nothing. Because it just looks like an ordinary fish. You can't see that a miracle happened through it. What about the origins of the universe? Like what instrument do you have to go back and, 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 and test whether it really was the, the Big Bang? Like was it that or, or was it a creative act of God? And so people use all kinds of ideas to try to test whether it was a Big Bang or, or, or was it the creative act from God? But what do they discover? They discover a lot of natural things. How do you test anything to see that a miracle has worked through it? And the truth is, it becomes very difficult to do. And, and this is why so many people have started to, you know, come to this idea or maybe believe that evolution is real and, and, and they've condemned for it being truth. Now, here's the thing. If evolution is real and the Big Bang happened and all of this is truth, then here's the reality. The Bible is fake. There's no God. And we are a bunch of crazy people because that is the only other explanation if you believe that in fact that evolution is real. We're just listening to ourselves and, 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 and have words reverberating in our souls and our heads and we think, oh, there's no soul. Forget that. None of that is real. So let, so let me just talk about evolution for a second. And gosh, in the time I got here today, I don't think I'm really going to be able to do the whole argument justice. And, you know, you could look somewhere else for that. But let's at least understand what it's all about. There are two ideas around evolution. I think it's important to distinguish between the two. There is what we call microevolution and there is what we call macroevolution. Now, I know that the two words, they sound kind of similar or they sound like they could really be linked, but they are totally different ideas, completely different ideas. In fact, I would say if you are a person of faith, you can comfortably with faith in your heart, believe and be okay with what we call microevolution. I think it's completely consistent with what faith is. When we talk about microevolution, we're talking about variation within species. And I think that's consistent with what the Scriptures say. So like, let's look at a story, a very good one that might be helpful for this. Imagine like Noah's Ark. Do you really think that they had a wolf, a Great Dane and a Chihuahua all on the boat? 
Yeah, some of you love pugs. Was there a little pug on there? Like a little French bulldog? Like, do they have every kind of dog that ever is going to exist? And it's all on the ark. No, 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 no. No, they had one like dog type species and within the genetic code was enough information for there to be a variation within the species. I mean, this is observable. We know that breeders do this all the time. They breed out certain traits. They breed in other traits. It's because within that genetic code, there's enough material for there to be variation within the species. That's what we call microevolution. And you can hold faith in God and still believe in that microevolution. Evolution, don't think it's a terrible word in that way. It just means that things evolve over time and we see it and it's observable today. That's microevolution. But macroevolution, that's where we draw the line. We don't believe in macroevolution. We don't believe that you can get from a fish to a philosopher. We don't believe that pond scum can become people. And we don't believe there's enough genetic material in that pond scum to evolve into a human being. We do not believe that we came from apes. We believe something completely different as Christian people. That is a totally different idea, completely different. And it's not just Christians that believe it. In fact, in 1916, scientists, this is not a Christian thing that happened, okay? This is a, a, a science, scientists uh, did a survey on their own people, right? Oh gosh, I feel like I'm putting them in categories. Forget what I said last week, all right? If you watched that message, right? But, but, but they did, they, they, they did a survey on their own people. And they said, do you think that God speaks through prayer directly to people? That was part of the, the survey. And 40% no, said no, and 20% said yes. And they repeated that experiment back uh, in 1997 uh, with all of the things that people know about time, uh, that they've developed over time and, you know, uh, science and our understanding of the universe and everything. They did the same experiment with a, a group of scientists and said, hey, what do you think? Has, they asked them the same questions. Have these things changed? And the survey hadn't changed. There's still a group of people that say no when there's a, there's a group of people that are 20% that are unsure and then they're not quite sure if that's how God speaks or not. I want you to understand something is that evolution, regardless of how it may have been presented to you, is in no way a slam dunk. Oh, they'll tell you it is, but it's in no way a slam dunk. Not at all. In fact, there are many non-theist scientists that still hold the tension and the question of whether God is real or not. Then they're not 100% sure. In fact, David Belinsky, who's one of the world's leading physicists, incredibly smart guy who describes himself as a secular Jew, and he actually leans more towards atheism. This is what he says. Has anyone provided proof of God's inexistence? Not even close. Has quantum cosmology explained the emergence of the universe or why it is here? Not even close. Have our sciences explained why our universe seems to be fine-tuned to allow for the existence of life? Not even close. Are physicists and biologists willing to believe in anything so long as it's not religious thought? Close enough. Has rationalism and moral thought provided us with an understanding of what is good, what is right, and what is moral? Not close enough. Has secularism in the terrible 20th century been a force for good? Not even close to being close. 
Is there a narrow and oppressive orthodoxy in the sciences? Close enough. Does anything in the sciences uh, or their philosophy justify the claim that religious belief is irrational? Not even in the ballpark. Is scientific atheism a frivolous exercise in intellectual contempt? Dead on. That is taken directly out of a book called The Devil's Delusion, Atheism and Its Scientific Pretensions as a response to Richard Dawkins' book uh, called The God Delusion. Now, he's not a person that subscribes to God or anything, but he's saying it's not a slam dunk. It's, it's not even close to what they present as being truth. And I think there's a whole bunch of people out there that are just confused and they're not really sure whether God exists. I think a time in history, like I said, you know, up until that enlightenment period, most people would have said, oh yeah, we believe in God. It's kind of funny because even on the census, you know, when people fill it in, even in times recently, they say, yeah, I think I'm a, I guess I'm Christian. I think my mom and dad were like, I guess that makes me one too. And, and I think that what we're seeing right now is culture and society is changing. I think what we're seeing right now is if people are unsure, they're more likely to maybe call themselves atheists than they are Christians. They want to make sure that they're put in the right category or, or, or the right group, but they're really unsure. Truth is, I've spoken to a lot of people who claim to be atheists. A few questions later, they're actually agnostic. That means that they don't know what they believe. They, they, they're not 100% sure, but they're definitely not atheists. And I'm sure that there's a lot of hardcore atheists out there that say, oh, no, I am. And I, I, I get that. I guess I understand it. But one of the things that I don't understand is how people can say that they're atheists and then never live like it. Like if you're, if you're an atheist, how can you ever love another person? You're a bag of chemical soup. I mean, really think about it. Everything that happens in you is a chemical response. It's survival of the fittest. You found a mate, you found a partner. You might call it love, but you can't believe in love. Love, love is just a chemical response. It's a, it's a reaction that happens in your body and you can't trust that because the universe is not moral and that thing's not trustworthy. You, you can't actually believe in love. I, I just know too many people that would say to their spouses they love them, even if they hold the tension or maybe say, I don't believe in God at all. At least be consistent in the thing that you believe. To me, it just doesn't make sense. I remember having a conversation with a friend of mine uh, years ago and he said to me, you know, I, I just don't know how you can believe. I want you to answer me now, Ben, they said over coffee. They said, why do you believe? And I said, well, the truth is I've seen too much. I've seen too much in my life. I know that God is real because I've been on this journey for a little while. And if you understand anything about taking a journey with God is that the longer you're on the journey, the more things that you see, the more experiences you have. And it's not just your own experiences that tell you that you're on the right path. It's the collective experiences of other people. It's the things that God says to them and they pass on to you that you know is right in your own life. It's so true. And we have these experiences with God. I said, I've seen too much. And all the things I've said up to this point, uh, these, these are just the things that are on the outside, but I've got a really important question for you. 
What if what you've been looking for, this sign that you want as proof that God is real, what if you've been looking in the wrong place? What if the sign that you've been looking for is not one that's necessarily outside, but it's one that's inside? Maybe the answer for you is not all out there. Maybe the answer is in truth in here. I don't think it's necessarily less valid just because you feel it. I don't think it's less valid because you've experienced it. You know, we we live in a very strange world today. I mean, we live in a world where you can change your gender if you feel like it. Heck, you could probably become a fridge if you feel like it. You can be anything you want. But when people say, oh, I believe in God, they say, no, no, you can't believe in God. Oh, you heard a voice? No. And they they completely want to invalidate that experience. But that doesn't make sense because God is spirit. Where do you think He communicates? When spirit speaks to you, it's not somewhere out there. It's often deep in here. When God wants to speak to you, He doesn't call your mobile number. He dials your soul and you have a conversation with Him somewhere in here. And over time, you learn to discern that voice and you understand who it is that's speaking to you. And the Scriptures would say that God has placed eternity in the hearts of men. The Scriptures would say that people have this deep, innate, inner sense that God is real and they've just learned to ignore it. They've learned to disregard it. They've learned to get rid of it because they feel like they're committing intellectual suicide to admit that they actually believe that God is real. And I tell you, that could not be further from the truth. It's just not right. Listen to what Romans 1, 21 to 22 says. It says, For although they knew God, they did not honour Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. The reason they became fools is because they shut down the inner sense of what God was trying to say. And what the Scriptures say is that, you know, His Spirit communicates directly with our spirit. If you're a Christian, that that inner sense becomes stronger. And I, I, I tell you this, right? For all the logic and all the reason and the experimentation and everything that you're looking for out there, I tell you this, that if you have an encounter with God, it will change you forever. You want it out there? He wants to do something in here. And once you've had that encounter, no one will be able to talk you out of it. And you know in your knower that God is real. You know, years ago, Completely disillusioned. I'm talking of myself here. Completely disillusioned of, of church and, 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 and God and, and everything about faith. I didn't really want anything to do with it, but I found myself driving home from a friend's house and, and we'd had a really big night the night before. And, and suddenly I, I felt like someone was speaking to me. I, I didn't really understand it at the time, but I, I, I did a U-turn on the way home. And, and b- believe me, after the night I had, I was going straight home to sleep, okay? 
So I did a big U-turn, I drive back, I, I drive down a street, no street sign. I don't remember seeing anything, no street sign that say a church was that direction. I just start looking for a church. I drive maybe a kilometer down the road, turn into the driveway. My goodness, imagine my luck. There is a church there. I walk straight into the church. I couldn't believe it, but my family was sitting in there. My uncle, and he looks at me, I look at him. We have a moment like he's like, what are you doing here? I'm like, I don't even know how I got here. I didn't want to go to church. I was on my way home. I, I just felt like maybe I should come to this place. I, I didn't know that this church was even here. I had an encounter with God that day. And I'll tell you the truth. When I left that church that day, I flicked down my mirror in my car before I left. And I said, hey, don't you ever write this off as an emotional experience because I know you, Ben, and you're going to try to rationalize it and you try to explain it to yourself and you try to find a logical solution for this. But what you've encountered today could never be explained as anything else other than the presence of God in your life. And that changed me. It changed me. It wasn't all the things that were out there. It was the things that were happening in here. And here's my point, is if the Bible has never even been proved wrong and it hasn't, there's every reason to believe that it is the way to know God. Every reason to believe it. Here's what the Bible says of itself. It says that there are moments where it has recorded what God has said. In fact, it says, thus saith the Lord, it appears hundreds of times. That's one of the ways that God has spoken. We've just been dictated and, and written down. And it says beyond that, that God spoke through His people. In the Old Testament, God would often speak to His prophets. In fact, in the Old Testament, if a prophet was speaking, it was as if God was speaking directly to them. And you think, well, gosh, couldn't, could, couldn't they just have people that are just making up stuff? Oh yeah, they did. They called them false prophets. You know how they knew who was false and who was real? When the thing you said didn't happen, they'd kill you for it. So you better make sure that you get it right. Don't you want to be a false prophet in the Old Testament? The third thing is that in the New Testament, it says that God, 2 Timothy 3.16, it says that all Scripture is God-breathed and that God spoke through His apostles. These are the ways that God has spoken. And if you, you hear all of that and you say, I don't think so. You, you can't. You cannot use internal evidence in the Bible to justify itself, really. Like, like what higher authority would you want to appeal to? Whenever you're trying to make a decision, you have to appeal to a higher authority. This is as high as it gets. There is nowhere else that you can go to to measure it because this is the revelation of God Himself. And if you hear all of that and you say, I don't know about this, I would challenge you to do this. Why don't you ask God to move in your life? Why don't you pray? One of the things that Jesus says is He says, my sheep know my voice. In other words, those that know me, they understand me, they hear my voice. And maybe sometimes, let's not, I don't want to get super crazy, right? Sometimes it takes a while to understand when God is speaking to you. But you know what? Sometimes people are listening for words when what you should be experiencing is a feeling. It's a prompting in your heart. It's something that happens and you don't know why, but you feel a certain way and you can't quite explain it, but you just know that it's right. And some way you know that it's God. And if all of this sounds too spiritual to you, I would say, what do you think we're talking about? We're talking about spiritual things. We're talking about spirit and we're talking about truth. This is the context of what we're talking about. 
You know, over time in history, people have tried to explain what I'm talking to you about right now. And, and they did it in the 17th century. The Westminster Confession of Faith said in 1643 to 46, they wrote this. We may be moved and induced by the testimony of the church to a high and reverent esteem of the Holy Scripture and the heavenliness of the matter with the efficacy of the doctrine, the majesty of the style, the consent of all the parts. This is speaking of God's Word. It says, I mean the Bible. It says the scope of the whole, which is to give all glory to God. The full discovery it makes of the only way of man's salvation and the many other incomparable excellencies and the entire perfection thereof are arguments whereby it doth abundantly evidence itself to be the Word of God. Yet notwithstanding our full persuasion and assurance of the infallible truth and divine authority thereof is from the inward work of the Holy Spirit, bearing witness by and with the Word in our hearts. You see, I don't know if that went over your head, but what they were saying is, if you look at this book, if you look at these Scriptures, this is the most amazing book you'll ever see, the most amazing thing that you'll ever read. But the full persuasion is not everything that's outside. They say it's what happens inside. It's the work of the Holy Spirit that speaks to you and somewhere on the inside of your heart, you say, I just know it's God. I know it's real. That's the work of the Spirit, bearing witness with your spirit so that you can see that what this is, is truth. It's called revelation. It's a work that God will do in your life. Maybe you've been looking for signs in all the wrong places. I love what Wayne Grudem says. He, he put it more simply and, and says this in summary. He says, you know, the Bible is historically accurate. It's internally consistent. It contains prophecies that have been fulfilled hundreds of years later. It has influenced the course of human history more than any other book. This book has continued changing the lives of millions of individuals throughout history and that through it, people come to find salvation. See, here's what you need to do. You just need to read it. And you should read it and begin with the idea that, hey, this could be truth, that this could be real. Because you start to read it like that. And I think that you're gonna have an experience with God. And it's that experience, that thing that happens inside of you that makes you go, I actually do think this is real. This is a faith thing that I'm talking about. You say, I believe it. And if you read this, and, and this is the way that sometimes people approach the Word of God, they, they take it and they say, well, God, I'll read it. I'm giving you a chance now to prove yourself to me. I would suggest that that is perhaps the wrong way to approach it. You're not giving God a chance, He's given you one. He's given you the Scriptures so you can recognize the work of the Spirit of God in your life. And as soon as you start to see that, and as soon as you start to understand that, it'll change the way that you look at the book altogether. Because faith, even if taught in a classroom, it will not convince you there. It is something that happens deep inside of here. You need to experience it. So the question, the question, can you trust the Bible? Well, I say, yeah, you can. And the moment that you do, it'll transform everything that you think. You realize that God is real and it has a profound 
profound impact on your soul. It has a profound impact on your destiny. It has a profound impact on your security. It has an impact on your identity. It changes you from the inside out and you realize that life has more meaning than it ever had before. And because this Word is truth and because we know what it says in the Scriptures, we can say with full assurance in our heart that you watching this today, that you are not random, that you are not chance. You are not the result of biology. You are not here today because your mom and dad got together. You have been selected. God knew that you would exist. You are not chance at all by any stretch of the imagination. We can say with accuracy in our hearts that God knows you. This is the reason why sometimes in your soul, you know that things are wrong. And this is the reason why people that don't even ever believe in God, when their back is against the wall and there's nothing else they can do, professed atheists all their life say, God, if you're real, I hope that you are. And I hope that you will save me from this circumstance and this situation. My encouragement to you would be, don't wait till you get there before you learn that God is real. You don't have to wait. Anytime you decide to open your heart to Him and, and say, I wanna let you in and I wanna know you, God will come in. It's, in fact, the Scriptures say, I knock on the door of your heart. The moment you open the door, that's when everything changes for you. And the moment that you realise all of these things are truth is, is the moment that you realise with accuracy that we can say assuredly that you are not a mistake. The moment that you understand this, we can say with accuracy that you are fearfully and wonderfully made. You are Imago Dei. God is Father, Son and Spirit. You are body, soul and spirit. You have been made in the image of God and it all starts to come together. He's a triune being, you're a triune being. You are made to be just not the same as Him, but you are made in His image. And it means we can say with accuracy, if this Word is truth, that God loves you, that He gave His life for you, that He wants to know you. I tell you, the, the God that owed you nothing gave everything so that you could be in a relationship with Him. That's the Gospel. That's the good news. That's Christianity. That's faith in God. And the moment you understand the love of Jesus, you will see it's the most beautiful thing that you can ever experience in your life. And my prayer for you was that no one would watch this and leave today, whether you're just watching on the train or however you're watching this message today, that no one would leave with a doubt in their mind that God loves you and that He cares about you. I promise you this, that if you wanna have an experience with Him today, it can happen right now. Best way to, to get that experience is, I, I say to first, why don't you just give your heart to Him? Give your life to Him and watch what He does. And watch how He transforms you and transforms your world and transforms your whole life. And it's so easy to do. It's a faith thing, but it's so easy to do. And here's how you do it. You, you just make the decision in your heart. It's not out there. It's all in here. And you say a simple prayer to God and you invite Him into your life and you change the direction of your life to say, God, I'm now I'm following after you. I would love to lead you in that prayer. So if you never ask Jesus into your heart before you've never asked Him into your life, why don't you just follow, repeat after me. Let's pray this prayer together, okay? All right, let's do it. Dear Jesus, thank You that You love me, that You died on the cross for my sins. I receive You today 
as my Lord and Saviour. And I choose to follow you every day for the rest of my life. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, thanks for listening to the Bright Weekly Podcast. We hope you're encouraged today and we'd love to see you at one of our services. So to connect further with us, head over to brightchurch.com.